Hello and welcome back to KHN's What the Health. I'm Julie Rovner, Chief Washington Correspondent for Kaiser Health News. I'm joined by some of the best and smartest reporters in Washington. We're taping on Thursday, October 1st at 10.30 a.m. As always, news happens fast and things might have changed by the time you hear this. So here we go. Today we are joined via video conference by Joanne Cannon of Politico. Hi, everyone. Margot Sanger-Katz of the New York Times. Good morning, guys. And Rebecca Adams of CQ Roll Call. Thanks for having me. Later in this episode, I'll talk to my KHN colleague, Laura Unger, who wrote the latest NPR KHN Bill of the Month. This month's patient illustrates what it's like to have insurance that covers all the benefits, but still leaves patients with unaffordable bills. So we're doing something a little different this week, our health policy election preview. Normally, we would do this later in October, but as we all know, nothing is normal about 2020. And this year, people have already begun voting. So I thought we'd go over some of the big health issues that are likely to play into voters' decision making. I guess we should start with Tuesday night's debate, which I must say was less fun than my last root canal and less anesthesia, too. The good news is that most of the health issues came near the top. The bad news is it was virtually impossible to follow what either candidate was trying to get across. Um, Sort of big picture, do you think voters got anything from either candidate that was health related or was it just, you know, a big mud throwing contest? That's an understatement. (laughs) Well, I, I, I didn't use the word that immediately came to mind. They got nothing useful about health care. I mean, when Biden tried to get things across, he wasn't that incisive on this topic. You know, he did have some good moments. He wasn't great on health, nor did he explain his own public option particularly well. In fact, he sort of got it wrong so or incomplete. So, no, I don't think it really illuminated much on health. Uh, for those listeners who looked at the various fact-checking Um, things that went up. There was a lot of misinformation from the president, but there wasn't a lot of effective counterpunching from Biden. Yeah, I agree. I mean, and also, if if you think about whether it changed any votes, I don't think it changed very much. Um, 538 did a poll afterwards, and the answers before the debate and after the debate about who you supported barely changed. The response for Biden was a little bit higher, and Trump was a little bit lower, but, but not much changed. When you think about who won the debate, CNN had a poll that said that 60% thought Biden won it, 28% said Trump, CBS had a more narrow gap, um, 48% for Biden, 41% for Trump. But I think overall, it wasn't very illuminating. And the CBS poll, the most common reaction was that viewers said they felt annoyed, which I think we can all relate to. Someone on Twitter said that the actual winner of the debate was Netflix. (laughs) Right. I just think that every mother in America was like wanting to scream, I need you to sit on the steps and think about your behavior. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. Somebody tweeted, you know, let a mom who's been home with her three kids since March moderate the next debate. Right. Amen. Was there anything that jumped out at you guys that made you cringe more than anything else? I know I got sort of frustrated when Biden was inexpertly trying to explain his public option. I I think what he was trying to explain was that the only people who would be auto enrolled are the people who are 
otherwise eligible for Medicaid, that for everyone else it would be a true option. But of course, that's not how it came out. Um, you know, there were there were other examples of things that just were like, they were trying, but unless you really knew this stuff, there was no way you were going to get it. Right. I mean, if he were graded on his explanation of his own health plan on that particular item, we would have all failed him. I think that I had been expecting back during the, the conventions, I had been expecting to hear a lot more of the socialized medicine. It's older than we are, right? It's been, it goes back to the 1930s. Um, we didn't hear it during the convention. We didn't hear either convention. We, we didn't hear a lot about the ACA. That was partly because at that time, until the Supreme Court opening, it was not the premier issue it has suddenly become. Yeah, that was the other thing I was going to say, is that even though I think the debate itself was not particularly revealing on this topic, I don't think anyone who didn't already know everything uh, could make much sense of it. I did think it was pretty revealing that if you remember the question that Chris Wallace asked that kicked off the whole healthcare section of the debate actually wasn't a question about healthcare. It was a question about the Supreme Court. And I think the fact that Biden immediately pivoted to the Affordable Care Act and the degree to which the Affordable Care Act may be under threat as a result of this Supreme Court case brought by Republican states and joined by the Trump administration is, I think, a pretty important signal. We're seeing similar signals from congressional leadership. Uh, Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi have really started talking about the Affordable Care Act a lot. And I think the debate over the Supreme Court has really brought uh, the Affordable Care Act, pre-existing conditions, sort of health insurance back into a place of prominence where, you know, if you looked at the polling over the last couple of months, it had really kind of been pushed down the list of voter priorities for early in the election. Healthcare was right at the top, either number one or number two in almost every survey. And then since COVID has hit, people have um, have had other more pressing concerns and sort of whether or not they had health insurance, I think is just like not as top of mind for a lot of voters. And I think the bet that the Democrats are making right now is that this debate over the new Supreme Court justice um, will bring the ACA back to a place of prominence that they can talk about it more. They feel comfortable talking about it. They know how to use it and they feel that they have a good playbook from 2018 that they can reprise. And so I think even though it was sort of ineffective in the context of the debate, I do think it's an important signal that you see Biden choosing in his answer to, I think, the first question of the debate immediately pivoting to we're going to save Obamacare. We want to protect people with pre-existing conditions and the other side doesn't. Yeah, I mean, we knew it was going to come up. Um, that's actually a perfect segue to what I wanted to talk about next, which is uh, how I wrote it is, let's see if we can make some sense of the stuff the candidates didn't. Obviously, as as we've been talking about already, there are a bunch of health issues that are top of mind for the public, at least according to the polls. Um, and we will take them one at a time. And let's do start with the ACA. Margo, you're right. It really looked for most of the year like this was going to be the first election since 2010 that the ACA wasn't to be a top issue. Now we have this Supreme Court seat open. And it looks like, you know, the Democrats sort of had a choice. They can talk about abortion or they can talk about the ACA. They seem to be way preferring to talk about the ACA because, oddly enough, it's less divisive, right? People's minds are not going to change at all on abortion, right? You know, if you're an abortion voter, if you're a single issue voter, you know who you're voting for. I mean, this is a base election, right? Trump's voters love him. Trump's base loves him. Biden's base likes him. <laughs> so you, you need to or, you know, can live with him if they were a Bernie voter. So it's, it's an intensity turnout race. It's getting your people to vote. It's getting your people either to the polls in person or getting them to go to the, depending on what your state, where you live, a mild to somewhat onerous 
uh, process of getting a mail-in ballot and making sure you fill it out right. Um, so I think the ACA becomes an intensity issue. When people start getting afraid that they could lose their insurance or they could lose their protection or that a loved one who has a chronic illness or a, the time of COVID or whatever, that becomes more of a motivating factor when it's at risk. Um, and it is um, somewhat more, it's hard for any of us to measure how much more at risk it is given the peculiar nature of the legal argument in the in the Supreme Court case. But it is clearly more at risk than it was a few weeks ago. And the, the, politically, it's a new talking point. It's an intense, it's an intensity builder. It's a turnout. And it's real. I mean, it is in more at more risk now. I feel like fear is a real big motivator, though. I mean, that's obviously, you know, Trump ran to, to some extent in 2016 on whipping up people's fears. He's doing it now. That's his whole law and order realm. And it was fear of losing the Affordable Care Act in 2017 that kind of led to the mobilization that got Democrats back the House in 2018. Actually, Joanne, I'm going to ask you to do your extra credit early. A story written, co-written by Margo. Margo and Sarah uh, Because Cliff, I think right. it like speaks to this. That's yeah, right. there's a story in today's Times by, by our, two of our fellow panelists, Margo, who's with us today, and Sarah Cliff, her colleague at the Times, who is not today, but sometimes joins us. It is a really good piece. Um, how Trump voters view his position on pre-existing conditions. And in fact, Trump voters think he is protecting pre-existing conditions. And it is a fact. It is not a political statement. It is a fact that he is backing a Supreme Court case that would overturn or eliminate those pre-existing condition protections. He is not backing pre-existing conditions. And that executive order he announced has absolutely no legal standing. It didn't change anything. It just said, yeah, well, we'll, we'll get to it. So, and yet if you're a Trump voter, you know, you think he's got my back. It's really infuriating, you know, as a reporter to see him say this stuff and you know that it's not true. And yet he keeps saying it. And I think what I tweeted when I tweeted the story, it's like, well, at least we know why he keeps saying it, because he's making his voters believe this stuff. All of the things that he's done have been to the contrary of this promise that he'll protect pre-existing conditions. And it's not just Trump. You see it, it the Republicans in the Senate who all voted to basically get rid of pre-existing conditions, who all say, oh, my goodness, I would never get rid of protections for pre-existing conditions. I mean, you know, Rebecca, is this working on the congressional level, too, the way it's clearly working for the president? I think Republicans realize that support for our pre-existing conditions has crossover appeal. It's the most popular part of the ACA. And to your point, I think that's why Tom Tillis put forward this amendment last night um, saying we support pre-existing conditions. Forget about what we voted on in 2017, which would have had more, more would have been more um important and significant. They're trying to inoculate themselves against charges that they would undermine coverage for pre-existing conditions, even though they're on record in doing that sort of thing. And Tom Tillis, we should point out, is the embattled North Carolina Republican who's, uh, I believe he's trailing in most of the polls now. He um, is trailing. It looks like Cal Cunningham has that one. Um, he's the Democratic challenger there. I thought the most telling quote in that story is one voter said something like, well, no one would ever take away pre-existing conditions. Like, that would be political suicide. And, like, in some ways, that highlights what the challenge is for Democrats and trying to make voters uh, scared about this issue, right? Like, they have this opportunity, this hook in the Supreme Court debate to basically say, you know, Trump is putting judges on the court and he's arguing this case in the court and this uh, replacement of Ruth Bader Ginsburg with Amy Comey 
Barrett, as he's proposed, you know, makes the Affordable Care Act more vulnerable. But I do think that it is different than it was in 2017 when members of Congress had written down what they wanted to do and all of us could analyze it in great detail. And when they were on the record as having voted to do things that would have weakened pre-existing conditions, I just think over time, these these protections have been in place for almost a decade now. People are used to them. People don't really remember what it was like before. And I think they just think like, why would anyone take that away? That would be crazy. I would be upset by that. And, and you know, I think there's a certain level of trust among Republican voters that Trump is not going to do something that would damage his supporters. And I think that does create a challenge for Joe Biden, for Democrats in Congress to try to keep people worried about a thing that they are a little bit less worried about than they used to be. On the other hand, I mean, I think the story was was really interesting because we do see uh, really strong support for the president on this issue among Republican voters, but he is vulnerable. When you look at independent and Democratic voters, they don't think he would be as good as Biden. So if it becomes an issue that people are voting on, it will be a good issue for Joe Biden. But uh, if it kind of stays sabrosa, if it's not as important as some of these other issues, then maybe um, the president's promises are kind of enough to just uh, mollify people and allow them to focus on other concerns. In 2016, Trump didn't talk a lot about the ACA until the last you know, 10 days, two weeks, I don't remember exactly. And then he really... It was most of October of 2016. Yeah, it was It was as premiums were coming out for that sign-up season and they were high. It was not a consistent message for him throughout the 2016 campaign compared to immigration and other things that were really his sort of hallmark issues. But then he like reamed it and he beat it up every day. It helped him toward the end. I think he also believes that it worked for him last time and beating up on he's got something better, the ACA is bad... Um, it's mostly gone because the mandate is gone. Biden wants socialized medicine. I think he thinks this is another put him over the top issue. I, you know, we, we know the world is different than 2016 in many ways, largely because of Donald Trump. Um, so I don't, I, I think that the issue has become a better one for Democrats. Look at the 2018 results. But I think we'll be hearing a lot about it, and I think it'll be very distorted. So I want to talk about COVID and its impact on the election. Obviously, we talk about COVID-19 every week. Um, But obviously, the Trump administration's handling of the pandemic is a giant political issue. Um, Does it even matter what Biden would do? Or is COVID, as an election issue, just a straight vote of confidence, no confidence on President Trump and his administration? I mean, do people even know what they want? You know, at least on the ACA. They know they want protection for pre-existing conditions, which, by the way, could include everybody who's had COVID. But on COVID, I feel like the public want to feel confident that this is being handled. And I think a lot of voters don't, even Republican voters, don't seem to feel that confident. I think also I was talking with some pollsters this week to do the story about pre-existing conditions. And, you know, uh, what someone said to me is that when a voter says COVID is my top issue, there's actually like a range of stuff underneath that. So some people mean vaccines and treatments. And some people mean control of the pandemic. And some people mean the kind of economic aftermath and the lockdowns and the kind of social disruption that COVID has brought. And so it is a really big issue, but it's sort of a bunch of different issues squished together in a way that I think makes it hard to tease out exactly what all of those voters are looking for. Um, Generally speaking, polls that have asked more specific questions have shown that voters are really disappointed with Trump's performance. I think that there is, to some degree, a judgment that he has done a bad job at controlling the pandemic and managing the aftermath. But we also see in a lot of polls that uh, voters continue to prefer him to Vice President Biden on 
the economy and so to the degree that some of those voters who are saying COVID is my top issue are worried about having lost their job or, you know, not being able to do commerce in the way they did before, those may end up being Trump voters, even though they're talking about COVID. And Trump's strategy is also to change the subject. Yes, he goes out and says, you know, I did a great job and everything is wonderful. But he also is talking about other issues, notably law and order and um, the related dog whistles that go with that conversation. He does keep saying that the pandemic is over, that we're rounding the final They're just term. a few embers. Um, These embers, right. Right. Well, he's, I mean, I, it, it feels like... And the vaccine know, is weeks away, he said <laughs> at the debate. Right. right. I mean, the vaccine is not weeks away, but as long as he keeps making people think, it, it might be months away. I mean, if we're lucky, we don't know yet, but that's a real, it was a few months, you know, that we start getting it for some people. That's realistic. That's possible. Not certain. It's not weeks away. But he's going to keep saying that. Um, he's trying to wish the economy open yeah. because as Margo points out the economy is one of the places that's still one of his sort of stronger points although I've seen a couple of polls recently where he's not necessarily leading on the economy either and then the other thing is that the country's become sort of numb not a, not in an uncaring numb but like an overload of pain numb and you know it, this has just become something we are living with and it's pretty remarkable that it has gotten to that point you know that we have, you know, 800 to 1,000 deaths a day, and it's probably going to get worse. Uh, you know, it may not get as bad as it was last spring because doctors have become better at knowing how to treat patients. Even without a cure, they, they know how to support patients while their bodies recover. We're, they're better at that. We can be grateful for that. But, I mean, we're still having a, a roughly, you know, 800 to 1,000 right now, and it's probably going to go up every single day. Every single day. That's the equivalent of multiple plane crashes every single day. And we're just like, okay, that's life now. It is. Well, to quote the president, it is what it is. Um, all right. I want to talk about two issues that are important to voters on Earth, too, where there is neither a pandemic nor an open Supreme Court seat. Uh, and that's prescription drug prices and surprise bills. Now, I'm not even sure that on Earth, too, that Congress and President Trump would have agreed on ways to address either of these issues, which were at the top of the health agenda and were bipartisan. Um, does the failure to address them cut better or worse for one party than another, since both parties promised to do something about this? And do voters still care enough about them? Or is this election really about much bigger things? I really think that COVID has overtaken issues like that. I mean, people's voters seem to not even remember things about surprise billing. Obviously, drug prices has been more in the news. Um, the Trump administration has talked a lot about lowering drug prices. And of course, they put to get, put out their blueprint a couple of years ago, but very little of that has been implemented. It's either been stopped in the courts or they just haven't gone forward with it. And the executive orders really don't change that. I think that as we think about what might be on the table for Congress to consider uh, next year, no matter who's in charge, I think maybe drug prices might be something that could be something that might move forward, maybe something on surprise bills, but I think it's going to be very difficult to move forward on anything, really. So these issues aren't really top of mind right now. And healthcare in general, um, when you think about COVID, that's become such a big issue um, that healthcare coverage has dropped 16 percentage points in polls since February as people talk about their top issue. I do think, though, that we talked about Joe Biden's current healthcare strategy, as far as I can see it, is to talk about pre-existing conditions, talk about the threats to the ACA that are happening through the courts. I think that Trump's strategy 
is to focus on these issues. And, you know, he gave a big healthcare speech last week where he sort of talked about his record, talked about a bundle of policies that he's done. As, as Joanne noted, most of them haven't actually happened, but he's at least sort of been vigorously doing ceremonial things to signal his support for policy changes on both prescription drugs and on surprise billing. And I think, you know, the what the president wants to do is say, reassure people about pre-existing conditions, don't worry about that problem. And then say, look, you know, the Democrats have spent 10 years, uh, you know, disrupting the whole healthcare system, costing you a lot of taxes, messing up your insurance options in order to protect a very small minority of people who didn't have insurance before Obamacare. And that's not what we're going to do. They keep defining the issue as having to do with a small sliver of uninsured Americans. What we want to do is we want to do stuff that's going to help everyone. It's going to be pocketbook issues for ordinary Americans who get their insurance through work, who get their insurance through Medicare, who get their insurance through the individual market as well. And they want to talk about these kinds of issues. You know, we want to lower prescription drugs. We want to get rid of surprise billing. We want to do pricing transparency. And it's sort of hard to cover in some ways because... I think all of us do use the democratic frame. We think about what it means to have a healthcare plan. We're like, well, what are you going to do about insurance regulation and the uninsured? And when Trump talks about having a healthcare plan, he's talking about what's he going to do to try to control healthcare prices and give people a kind of more market-oriented set of choices within the existing insurance framework. They're almost like completely different discussions. So I think that Trump thinks these are good issues for him, and that's why he's hammering them so hard and trying to just kind of dispense with the other stuff. But I think it is an open question whether uh, these are the healthcare issues that will be elevated. And again, I think, you know, with any scrutiny on his record, it's pretty easy to see that he hasn't actually achieved anything on drug prices. He hasn't actually achieved anything on surprise billing. All he's done is signaled that he wants to. But I think it's another choose your own adventure topic. He says, I brought down drug prices and Republican Trump voters are going to say, wow, he brought down drug prices. <laughs> and Democrats are saying, what did he just say? You know, the, it, it's another one of these, you've already, it's already baked in. It's also not the primary issue. I mean, it, it may be for some individuals, but not for the country. Healthcare costs overall do still show up in the polls. Um, we did a poll um, just a couple of weeks ago, showing that that was still a pretty high concern. However, that poll was right before Ruth Bader Ginsburg's death. Priorities did shift, emphasis did shift, but healthcare costs hadn't the, the the fear of high bills had not gone away. Um, it was still pretty high among both Democrats and Republicans. Top tier, not the top issue. I want to use these last few minutes to sort of speculate about what might be on the agenda, depending on who is elected, and obviously that depends completely on, you know, who controls Congress. But, you know, let's at least talk about sort of the the agenda from the top. Actually, since we met last week, President Trump unveiled what he calls his America First Healthcare Plan, with healthcare one word, much to the consternation of most health, health reporters. Uh, among other things, the plan includes an executive order stating that it is the policy of the federal government that people with pre-existing conditions be protected with absolutely nothing to make that so. But what else is in that plan that could give us hints about what would be worked on in a second term. Margo, I think that was a, you know, a really important insight that when the president thinks about a plan, quote unquote, he's not necessarily thinking about it in the way that Democrats and frankly, most health policy experts would. He's thinking about, you know, sort of bits and pieces. It was a struggle for his administration to try to cohere these disparate things into a plan. It doesn't feel like he has an idea for like systematically how he wants to change the healthcare system, but there are a lot of little 
pieces of things that he wants to do better. And some of them are underway. You know, they've, um, there's like a whole kidney care initiative. There's this price transparency um, initiative that's going to go into effect if it doesn't get stopped in the courts next year, which is like actually like really interesting and revolutionary idea. It doesn't actually seem to me to be obviously partisan. It's just interesting. And then he does have this kind of suite of policy ideas to constrain drug prices. I think many of which are also legally vulnerable and and some of which may not have a ton of effect, but it's clear that he is thinking about the price of drugs. He thinks it's something important. And and in fairness to Trump, it is an issue that he has talked about since the last campaign. I think in the final weeks of the 2016 campaign, he talked about uh, repealing Obamacare, but throughout the primaries and the um, general election campaign in 2016, he talked about wanting to lower the price of prescription drugs. So I do think this is a real through line for him. Although we should we should point out here that that uh, despite what he said at the debate, they have not insulin is now not the same price as water unless you're drinking really expensive water. I mean, that's the thing. They've, they've done some small things that that the president, I feel like, has tried to blow into like huge things. It's the way he keeps saying that Obamacare is dead because they zeroed out the uh, the individual mandate penalty. He signaled all of these things that he wants to do, and then he talks about them as though they have already been achieved. So, you know, one of his ideas is this is something he calls the most favored nation policy. So this is the idea that Medicare should be able to buy drugs at the same price as the lowest price paid by other countries. Uh, And so he has signed an executive order basically telling the Health and Human Services Department, like, figure out how to do this. Um, I think figuring out how to do it actually is going to be extremely difficult and, again, vulnerable to legal challenges. But maybe maybe they will do it and maybe it will survive the legal challenges. But all of that is very far in the future. And yet when Trump talks about it, he talks about how he's lowered drug prices by 80 percent. And similarly with insulin, he has a policy that is now, I believe, in the form of a proposed rule that would for certain health centers that are able to buy drugs from drug companies at very discounted prices, it's going to force them to carry along those discounts to consumers, which is not the case now. And so it is possible if that policy becomes real that for certain customer, or certain patients uh, who meet certain characteristics who are getting insulin from federally qualified health centers, that they are going to see um, much cheaper insulin than what they buy now. But Again, he talks about insulin is cheaper than water. I mean, that's just clearly, clearly not true. Insulin is quite expensive. And, you know, we talk and read all the time about these cases of people who, because they are unable to afford their insulin, um, suffer really serious illness and even death. So here's a provocative question. Um, drug prices in particular, uh, and price transparency a little bit less, are pretty populist issues, something that everybody, you know, from from both parties likes. And the president obviously has been riding them as campaign issues. And he says it, you know, so people love me because I'm going to beat up on the drug companies. If he gets reelected, and then theoretically, we'll never have to stand for reelection again. Is he going to be so excited about some of these issues that he himself says he was doing just to get votes? I think on drugs, he wants to do it. I think that's one of the few issues that there there has been, Julie, you pointed out. I mean, I think there has been some consistency and there has been some effort. The politics became he was proposing things that the Democrats on the Hill liked more than the Republicans. He could have, you know, in a different political climate, he could have cut, cut a deal with Pelosi, not in the current toxic environment. But there's some common ground there. He almost did, right? right? They came close and then, I mean, they, there were right, and then they backed yeah. off. It's the Senate. He couldn't get it out. He couldn't get it through the Senate because the Senate Republicans didn't like it. So that's going to be the pattern. I mean, if if Trump gets reelected, Pelosi is still going to be running the House. The House will still be Democratic. Anything that Trump does legislatively is going to have to be bipartisan, which means maybe nothing happens. If it's Biden, 
you know, and he wins control of the Senate, which is possible if Biden wins, it is possible, you know, then there's a different dynamic. If Biden wins the White House and there's a smaller but still Republican majority in the Senate, then you go back to either stalemate or small bipartisan steps. So, well, that's what we're going to talk about in a second. Unless Rebecca, do you have something to say on Trump or shall we move to Biden? Well, Joanne made some of my points. I mean, getting Republicans to agree with some of Trump's ideas have been, has been the challenge so far. I think that if we were electing Trump to be king, we could be certain that there would be action on drug prices. I, I, I agree with Joanne. Like, he wants to do something on this. He's open to kind of weird and aggressive ideas that haven't been tried before, that are not necessarily Republican ideas. But the problem is, is that, you know, really these kinds of policy issues in healthcare have to be done through Congress. They really just can't be done through executive action alone. And that's why, you know, we see the president constantly doing these events and signing these executive orders. And all of us uh, who kind of understand the legal details are sort of shaking our heads, even though maybe he is having some impact on voters by saying that he is doing these things. So, you know, the real challenge is going to be working with Congress, getting Congress to enact policies that are consistent with his vision. And, you know, Trump has a really pretty poor track record, actually, of working with Congress on any of these policy areas. You know, their big success in the first term was on tax reform, where I don't really think the White House had a huge role in crafting that legislation. And, of course, on health care, on Obamacare repeal, the White House kind of bungled it. So, And, of course, when he's a lame duck, it's going to be even more difficult. Yeah, that's a good point. All right. Well, Biden, on the other hand, has laid out a lot of fairly detailed plans, both to beef up the Affordable Care Act and take control of the pandemic. Um, Let's start with COVID first. What would Biden do that Trump isn't doing? A coherent national plan. He has a very detailed plan. He's been working on it since March. It's been updated and changed as the situation has has evolved. But the single, the sort of, you know, the back of the cereal box message is it'll be a national plan, national supplies, national testing, national strategy, not this business of every state for themselves. And um, Biden has also pledged to let scientists be scientists. Yeah, I think that I mean, for me, that was sort of the, the probably the most important thing. It's like keep the, the, the political appointees out of the science agencies and let the science agencies do their work, which is until Trump in the case in Democratic and Republican administrations. All right. Well, obviously, his health plan has already had a lot of coverage, Biden's health plan, largely because he was one of the few Democrats who publicly rejected support for Medicare for all. But as we mentioned, he had some trouble in the debate Tuesday explaining how it would work. Basically, he's trying to steer sort of he likes say he's trying to steer a middle ground. And in today's Democratic Party, he is trying to steer a middle ground. On the other hand, it strikes me that what he's proposing, which is a big expansion of the ACA would not be that easy to get through Congress, even if Democrats take back the Senate, right? I think it's going to be impossible to get something like a public option through Congress or even a Medicare buy-in, because I think that you're going to have relatively narrow margins in the Senate. The Senate is key. And I think that the health industry is obviously very opposed to these issues. I think that obviously we've had this discussion and COVID is going to be top of mind. That's going to be the the number one priority. It's very difficult for presidents to get very much done anyway, given the gridlock in, in Washington. Even if they have the House and a narrow majority in the Senate, they're not going to have you know, the 60 votes that they had at the beginning of the Obamacare debate. And it was really hard to get Obamacare through. So I think that it would be very difficult to get anything like that through. And can I suggest that that would be the case, even if they get rid of the filibuster, that's sort of the big talk. It's like, well, if they have 53 vote, you know, but getting those last few moderate Democrats, I mean, no matter what they do, they're going to have to get Joe Manchin's vote. 
it's not going to be easy. It is a good question about what we will see in terms of Senate rules. I think that that is a good question. Are they going to get rid of the filibuster? Um, Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer has said that everything is on the table if the Supreme Court nomination goes through. And but but it's it's going to be difficult. I mean, obviously, that, that would be terrible for bipartisanship. What little of it remains in Washington if they did get rid of the filibuster. Um, so I, I think that it would be a challenge. I think that we aren't quite sure of how this pandemic has changed our country. And just like we are, every one of us is sort of putting one foot in front of the other and getting through the day. That's what the country is sort of, you know, that's happening all across the country. And, and there are all sorts of pent up things that I just don't think we get yet. And there may be more desire for change in healthcare than we have traditionally seen. We may be ready to do, I don't think we, we're not, I'm not talking about Medicare for all, but there may be chances to do more than tinkering around the edges. Biden has moved to the left. He has not moved to where Bernie Sanders is, but his public option is different now than his, even if he can't explain it, all of us can. Um, His public option is more robust than the one he was talking about six months ago. Medicare isn't a buy-in. It's moving the Medicare age down to age 60. That's a big change. I mean, can he get that through? Probably not, but can he get something through with a Democratic Senate? We might be surprised that he can get some steps far short of transformational, radical, blow up everything. But can he get more done than we thought a few months ago? Maybe. A lot of people have, I think that this has been a country-changing and life-changing experience. Many people have lost their, their insurance. We don't know how many yet. The linkage between the pandemic has done more than any political candidate ever to, to show the flaws of linking health insurance to our jobs because millions of people lost jobs. Um, so I think, there, I think there may be more of an opening. And then legisl- uh, the executive branch can do certain things. They can make it easier for people to enroll. They can do more outreach. There, can do, there are a lot of things they can do to strengthen Obamacare even without. They can undo some of the stuff that Trump has done without even being challenged in court. It is within their powers. You can like get on TV and talk about sign up, everybody. And you can do when people lose their jobs in the coming months, if this if the economy doesn't turn around, you can make it easier for people to get covered outside of the traditional enrollment period. I think the arena to watch is in the regulatory sphere. I think that they could use the Innovation Center to do some things. I think, as Joanne mentioned, you know, you could... Assuming the ACA doesn't get struck down because well, the Innovation Center is part of the ACA. That's true. That, that is a whole other area to discuss. But I, I think that, you know, you could boost outreach for enrollment. You could lengthen the enrollment period. You could do all sorts of things to make it easier to enroll. In terms of Congress, my thought is... They probably would need to do something through a process called reconciliation, which requires provisions to be related to tax or spending decisions. And you can't have things that are incidental to tax or spending decisions, but are really policies go through that. So, for example, but that's if, if they don't get rid of the filibuster, if they don't get rid of the filibuster. Yes. And, and part of that is dependent on how many Senate seats they win. Um, But if you were to use reconciliation, you could do things like beefing up the subsidies and changing the subsidies, which uh, Vice President Biden says that he wants to do, um, and limiting the cost for people to 8.5% of their income in in the exchanges and, and trying to change coverage in that way. So, you know, you might be able to do something through drug prices on drug prices through reconciliation if you're creative. So I think there are things that you could do. 
um, you could not do something requiring insurers to cover pre-existing conditions under historical interpretations of that. So we'll see, but that would that would provide an avenue for doing some small things through Congress. Well, I think it's fair to say that no matter who gets elected, we are going to be have plenty to talk about uh, in the coming year. Um, that is as much time as we have for our election preview. I hope it helps. Now we will play the Bill of the Month interview with Laura Unger, and then we will be back with our extra credits. We are pleased to welcome to the podcast my KHN colleague, Laura Unger, who wrote the latest Bill of the Month. Welcome to the podcast, Laura. Thanks. So this month's patient is different from most of the people we write about in that he got a really big bill, but he has health insurance, and the bill was not for unexpected out-of-network care. Tell us who he is and how he came to need expensive medical care. Sure. Matthew Frentress is a 31-year-old cook at a senior care facility in northern Kentucky. And uh, back six years ago, he got the flu and then developed a heart problem called cardiomyopathy after that. It got worse and worse. And three years later, he ended up in the hospital where he got a pacemaker and a fibrillator. And he couldn't pay that bill and wound up declaring bankruptcy. Uh, And even after that, his heart problems required ongoing care, including a procedure earlier this year called cardiac ablation. And of course, he he has what you call high deductible insurance. So we knew he was going to have to pay out of pocket. How much did he expect this to cost total? And how much did he expect this to cost him? He expected this to cost him about $7,000. I don't know if he knew exactly how much the whole thing was going to cost, but he thought his portion would be about $7,000. And uh, he has an out-of-pocket maximum for his insurance of uh, $7,900. So he expected to have to basically pay most of his out-of-pocket maximum. And what does it mean to have an out-of-pocket maximum, for those who might not know? An out-of-pocket maximum is how much you have to pay, including your deductible and your co-pays and co-insurance. So the total maximum amount you'd have to pay under your plan. For a year, right? Yes, for a year. After that, everything is free? Yes. So how much did he end up getting charged? He ended up getting charged about $10,000. That was for the ablation and some related visits. So that would have been his total. And he worried he could not pay that because uh, he only earns about $30,000 a year. So he's basically one of these people who is underinsured, right? He has insurance, but he can't necessarily afford to use it? Yes, exactly. And how many people are like that? Do we know? Yeah. So uh, research shows about 43% of adults 19 to 64 are inadequately insured. And about half of those people are considered uninsured with deductibles accounting for 5% or more of their household income or out-of-pocket health costs, excluding premiums, claiming 10% or more of their household income over the past year. So basically, if they have a problem like he did and they have to go and get care, the insurance will cover its share, but they can't cover their share. Right, exactly. They very much uh, struggle to to pay for their care. So uh, so how did uh, Matthew end up paying this? And, and I guess you should explain why he was charged more than his out-of-pocket maximum. So he had a few related visits in the previous year. So in 2019, and then his major procedure was in January of this year. So because it spanned two years, that explains that. Um, As far as how he is hoping to pay, he ended up getting in touch with hospital officials and they mentioned that he should apply for some help, some financial aid. And so he's hoping that that could help him pay this bill. But he hasn't gotten it yet. 
He has not. Um, it, last I knew, he uh, he had the paperwork but had not uh, filled it out yet. So what do you do if you have insurance with a deductible that's more than you can afford, but you need health care anyway? I guess I guess the first lesson is try not to have it span two years. Right, exactly. Yeah, that's what experts say. Plan elective procedures at the end of the year when your deductible is more likely to have been met. Also, apply for financial aid. I mean, there was some time when Matthew didn't think he would qualify because he had gotten it in the past, but that's not true. He can qualify, so apply for financial aid. All hospitals have it, uh, and it's not only for very low-income folks. You know, you may qualify. And then even if you don't, you may be able to actually negotiate the bill with the hospital. And also, I mean, I think a lot of people think that financial aid is only for people who don't have insurance. But obviously, there's a lot of people, as we just pointed out, who have insurance and still would have a major financial hardship paying their medical bills. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, financial aid is for the underinsured as well as uninsured insured for sure. Okay. Laura Unger, thank you very much. You're welcome. Okay, we are back and it's time for our extra credit segment. That's where we each suggest a story we read the past week we think others should read too. Don't worry if you miss it. We will post the links to these stories on the podcast page at khn.org slash what the health. Joanne, you have already done yours this week. Rebecca, why don't you go next? I picked out a great story from ProPublica. Investors extracted $400 million from a hospital chain that sometimes couldn't pay for medical supplies or gas for ambulances. And this is a story about the role of private equity in healthcare and how, in the case that they discuss, patients and the medical professionals really suffered. Um, there's a quote in there about the amount of greed that was involved. Um, this takes a look at a particular a hospital and private equ- equity firm in Los Angeles, but it's really a larger tale about what's happening with our healthcare system and, and how private equity doesn't have the interest of patients first in at the top of their mind and how healthcare quality can suffer. That's a good story. Margo. Uh, I wanted to highlight a story that is a little bit of a follow-on to a conversation that you guys had uh, two weeks ago. It's called Immigrants Say They Were Pressured into Unneeded Surgeries. Uh, and this is from my colleagues at The Times, Caitlin Dickerson, Seth Freed Wessler, and Miriam Jordan. And uh, as listeners may recall, there was a whistleblower at ICE uh, who said that a lot of women, uh, ICE detainees at a particular facility were being sent to this gynecologist who was giving them a lot of hysterectomies uh, in a manner that was suspicious. And uh, these reporters, uh, in really incredible piece of reporting, interviewed 16 women who had been treated by this one doctor uh, near this particular ICE facility and also got their complete medical records and had them reviewed by other board-certified gynecologists to see whether the treatment that they received was appropriate. What they found was a little different than what the whistleblower said. Not all of these women had total hysterectomies, but what they found is that um, many of these women were pressured into having um, extensive gynecological surgeries that the medical experts that the Times consulted said were probably unnecessary. They didn't understand what was happening. In some cases, they didn't want them to happen. And the other piece of information in this story that um, I think sheds new light on what was going on is that this was a doctor who had a history of Medicare and Medicaid fraud. And so, you know, we had talked about, or you guys had talked about this story a few weeks ago as possibly being a sort of eugenics um, 
motivated set of sterilizations of these women. And of course, we don't know that may have been a factor. But it also seems like maybe this was just a doctor who was looking to make some extra money from the Department of Homeland Security and using these vulnerable women as a way to do that. And it's just, I don't know, it's really been uh, haunting me, this story. And I recommend reading it in part because these women speak really articulately about what happened to them. And, uh, you know, their voices are worth listening to. Yes, thank you to the Times for the incredible effort that obviously went into that story. Uh, my story is from the Washington Post. It's called Seven Former FDA Commissioners. The Trump administration is undermining the credibility of the FDA. And it's by the last seven FDA heads who served both Presidents Bush, President Clinton, President Obama, and President Trump. Um, they say the same thing we've been saying for the past several weeks, although they have a lot more standing to say it, which is that the political interference with the FDA over things COVID-related could result in not just loss of public credibility over things COVID related, but all of the things FDA regulates, which remember is $1 out of four of everything in the economy, uh, says the piece, quote, when the FDA warns about a risk from contaminated food, will people heed it? When a new drug for cancer or heart disease is approved, will clinicians and families trust it to work? Uh, It's pretty rare in this town for people of such diverse political backgrounds to get together, but we are in pretty rare times. So that is our show for this week. As always, if you enjoy the podcast, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We'd appreciate it if you left us a review. That helps other people find us, too. Special thanks, as always, to our ace producer, Francis Ying, who makes us sound okay, even though we're all in different places. Also, as always, you can email us your comments or questions. We're at whatthehealth, all one word, at kff.org. Or you can tweet me. I'm at Jay Rovner. Joanne? I'm at Joanne Kennan. Rebecca? At Rebecca Adams, D.C. Margo. At Sanger Cats. We will be back in your feed next week. In the meantime, be healthy. Be healthy.